0: Welcome to Professor Charlene Hespiber's podcast series. In our second podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about the genetic testing industry, the way it's marketed and run, women's experiences of it, and her concerns about its role in making American society less tolerant of risk. People began to have available to them the possibility of monitoring
1: and looking inside their DNA, their genetic material, to look for and tap into certain mutations in their genes, testing for some indication of genetic problems. What's interesting is that this test 10 years ago, if you had your entire genetic makeup scanned, it would cost you about a million dollars. Today, 10 years later, it'll cost you about $1,000. What got me really thinking about genetic testing, not just for BRCA, is the increasing popularity of genetic testing in American society in general. The feeling that somehow or other we see our genome as the essence of our nature, the belief that genes will tell you your future. Uh, You look into
0: this crystal ball and somehow or other, your future is before you. So when you started narrowing down your research focus to the BRCA gene testing industry, what did you find there? I wanted to look a little bit more at the genetic testing
1: industry for BRCA because it had been growing by leaps and bounds and testing companies like the Myriad Corporation and others were charging megabucks for these tests, yet they were unregulated by any kind of governmental authority. And these tests were promising things like knowledge is power. Once you know your genetic makeup, you can see the future, you will have the power change your life just by these test
0: results. In your book, you say that potential regulators, such as the, the FDA, the Food and Drugs Administration in the US, was left pretty ill-equipped, I think is the word you use, to deal with all of this. Tell, tell us more about what you mean by that. Because it's so
1: profitable. And I think there were no prior regulations about genes. It it took the Supreme Court many years later to finally tell the Myriad Corporation that they couldn't patent genes. Up to that time, Myriad assumed it could patent your genes, your genes. It could create a database and people would have to come to them to find out any information about hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and other cancers they later tested on, and they got away with it. So it took a long time for the Supreme Court to get this ruling, and Myriad's trying to wiggle out of it by having another test that is a little different, that tests for more mutations. And while that ruling has held up, what the sorry state of affairs is, is that Myriad has the database that norms all these tests, that it compares your test to this large database to tell you what the probability is, is that the mutation you have is aggressive or non-aggressive. It will give it a certain number that it stores in its database, and it, it doesn't have to give up that database. So any new company that comes along and charges less doesn't have the database to
0: compare your particular result to this wider set of mutations. Another of your really principal concerns that you express in the book is the is around the way in which these tests are marketed and advertised. It's absolutely key part of what you write about. What are your main concerns there? By and large, it's
1: a marketing campaign of fear. What it says is if you don't get tested, you could get cancer. You know, they have pictures, for example, of a family of a mother, a father and their two young children with a woman looking down saying, did you know that you could have been tested for ovarian cancer. Look at what you're risking. If you don't, you're risking passing it on to your children. You're risking dying. Some ABC News story had a picture of two sisters, one who got tested and one who didn't. And the one who didn't, it's really clear that she lost her hair. She has a, She's wearing a baseball cap. And the, it's implied that, you know, I got tested. Look what happens when you don't. And it's her sister looking down. And I'm thinking, wow talk about sister. This really feeds into my concerns about look what happens when you don't do what you're told. Part of this whole theme of genetic testing, you know, testing based on fear and testing based on knowledge is power. The idea is the companies tell you, if you get this test and you
0: you know that you're positive, you have the power to change your life. So one of your major concerns then is around what they don't tell you as much as what they do tell you. They don't tell you that, in fact, some of our tests are not accurate
1: and we're not controlled. So you could have false positives, false negatives in your test, and you can't get a second test because you have to come back to us, right? So what often happens is some of these tests that are false positives what do you do after that when the test result is flawed it means you're you're working with half a deck and you may not even know it we know already with uh, mammographies that screening, even for false positives, is pretty high. There was one study I ran across, actually, that said over 10 years, quote, of annual screening starting at age 40, the cumulative probability was 61.3% for false positives, 7% for a false positive biopsy. And this is just with mammography. So we need some checks and balances
0: that the genetic industry is not giving us. I was also interested in what you describe as the impact of the advertising on a woman's feeling of moral obligation after a positive test, maybe to encourage other family members to get tested. What we know from the
1: literature uh, is that women take on a real moral obligation to take care of the testing uh, needs of their families. They will call up relatives that they had never spoken of before, telling them they're a positive, only to have the phone hung up. They feel that they have to tell everyone about this. Well, you're now alarming everyone in your family net. Families are split up from testing. You, you call up your brother. Uh, you tell him you're a positive. He has two children. He doesn't want his children to know, and he doesn't want to be tested. So what do you do? Well, you call up his children, and you talk with them. He finds out. He's not talking to you ever. You've just crossed the line with, with his family. This woman may say, it's my obligation to tell everybody. You don't want to tell them that I have an obligation to tell them. What happens... When a mother gets tested, and she doesn't want to tell her younger daughter, but she tells her older daughter, and secretly her older daughter gets tested, and she's positive. The younger daughter has no clue that both the mother and the daughter are keeping this information from her. Finally, the mother decides she's old enough to get tested. She's told. She doesn't
0: want to speak to either one of
1: them. She's felt betrayed by them. She's
0: upset. These are just a few of the stories that don't always have happy endings. So would you describe the sense of moral obligation as a negative thing then?
1: I'm not saying that some of this is not a good thing, but we've overstretched this testing net. And we're getting into it, people that whose lives will be turned upside down. So I, I often compare it to um, opening Pandora's testing box. You better be careful what you wish for because it comes with a whole bunch of caveats that the testing industry and others will never tell you. But it will rain down on you. And are you prepared?
0: This would seem, uh, Charlene, the perfect moment at which to start talking about some of the experiences, about some of the experiences of the women you spoke to, about you know what they found when they went to access the test or when they thought about accessing the test. They're sitting down, feeling numb, getting their results,
1: and being talked to. There's not a lot of pre-sitting down. They have so many questions after the fact that they want to ask the genetic counselor, but then the appointment's over, and the thought of going back again is too much. So they're kind of
0: left in this state of limbo, of, guess I'm going to die. Now, more and more women than ever before, you make the point in the book, are, are turning to preventative surgery to deal with this whole issue. What's your take on that?
1: Too many women are getting preventative surgery that may not need it. And in fact, we have no evidence in some cases that it that the mortality for women ha- that have surgery versus surveillance is any different. We don't see the whole story being told. And I'm not against at all women who need to have preventative surgery, who need to have oophorectomies. We know there is a large number of cases where that is thing to do, but not at the rate that we are seeing in this country. We are over-prescribing radical surgeries to people that may do very well, having surveillance
0: maybe. It just it doesn't add up to a, a healthy picture. And it's not just the fact that many of these women are turning to surgery or being encouraged to turn to surgery. I know it's the haste with which they do that, is of particular concern to you? They may not need surgery right then. They need good consultation.
1: They need to assess their risk in a way that they understand fully what they're getting into. But very often, fear takes over. They say things to me, my breasts are ticking time bombs. I I couldn't wait fast enough to get them off. I've been ambushed by my genes. I've been railroaded. Uh, I could hear my mothers telling me, get them off, get them off. And there's such fear of the impending doom. A woman said to me, I'm BRCA positive. I guess I die. And I'm thinking, where did this come from? This is very... For many women, very deep rooted, so much fueled by a testing industry. Anyone can get tested for many mutations without the intervention of a general practitioner. You can go online, get this test kit, take a swab, maybe. Of your saliva. We don't have to go through general practitioners. We can market this test over the internet to anybody we want. We can expand the testing net, obviously, to people that don't need to be tested because we want the money. What you're getting in that net are people that should never have been tested at all. You can begin to see we're getting into some hot water here. Where's the FDA? Who's regulating the tests how accurate are the tests readings? Where's the oversight? And more and more testing companies are bubbling up to the surface with the promise of looking into
0: your future. Do you think everything we've talked about today tells us something about American society as a whole, especially where it comes to this consideration of risk? It captures kind of our need to do a something in this culture,
1: to run away from risk. But we play with risk our whole lives. We we can't shut it down. We can play an odds ratio, you know, tell me my odds for X, Y, and Z. But in the end, even if you had another test and you found, or you had, you know, more radiation, you had another kind of surgery, you're going to have to tolerate some risk. And we don't want to tolerate risk. We need at some point to make peace with it. The most important message about this was the stage four women I interviewed. They know cancer is coming. They embrace the lives they have. And the stage four women say to me, I'm living my life. I, ha- I have a- an eight-year-old son. I'm barely 40. I'm stage four. Cancer's coming but I'm living my life. What I'm trying to say is you can't get rid of risk. It's part of living, it's part of our human condition. I'm not against preventative medicine, believe me, but it's like
0: when a life becomes revolved around this, you stop living. Charlene hess was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our next podcast, we'll talk about how the women in her study prepare themselves to take the BRCA gene test, how it affects them and their families. This series is produced by Research Podcasts.